Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas... You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live... One. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and it's time for tech. And we are lucky enough to be joined by that story denizen of that tech deep, Matthew Summerfield, aka Summers F1, who is technical editor at motorsport.com. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. No problem, Matt. Thanks for having me on as usual. Of course. Um, it's great to have you back. And we have some interesting things to talk about, despite the championship battle being, well, more or less kind of entirely decided. But before we get to that, I need to remind everyone we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. So, the big battle for the Drivers' Championship and the Constructors' Championship, uh, frankly, it looks almost done. There's already lots of talk about next year, and if I'm being honest, that makes my life a lot harder here. But thankfully, there are still a few questions left to resolve on the racetrack, uh, so I thought we might start with the uh, remaining players at the table. Okay, yeah, let's, uh, let's dive into it then. And no better place than the sharp end where, thankfully enough, even though Max looks like he's on his way to winning, we have a four-way fight for second through fifth place with Leclerc at 219 points and Signs bringing up the rear at 187 points. And it includes not just a Ferrari or two, but also a Mercedes and Red Bull. Now, I'd like to start with Ferrari. And, and I have to say that the last time we talked, well, you seem to have some opinions about Ferrari and their design. And I'm just curious, has your opinion about that changed at all? Oh, well, 
you might have to remind me of what I actually said, but I, I wouldn't have thought that my opinion has changed dramatically uh, in in terms of their position in the championship and, and, and where they, they're going forward. Well, I think uh, I, I don't want to ascribe works you didn't actually say, but let's just say that you said they were much more reactive than directional in their approach to the season. Um, they would look around and see what other people were doing, take what they wanted, but they didn't seem to have a clear development direction they intended to go in regardless of what was happening around them. Yeah, I mean, I think we've still seen plenty of that from them. Uh, I think, obviously, at this point in the season, we're, we're seeing development die down and we're seeing the teams try to hone in on the, the developments that they've already bought to the, the circuit and make those work, uh, especially as now we've gone through what I would cl- class as the outliers, the likes of Monza, Spa, etc. And now we're going to the circuits where, you know, we, we've seen the setups already, you know, we're heading to Singapore next and you would expect teams to be taking the sort of packages you would have seen in Hungary. So, you know, things will have started to bed down in, in many ways in terms of the development race for the, the end of this season. Um, and I think one of the key things to think about in terms of Ferrari is that I think they think thought themselves that they might have got a little bit lost at a certain point when they introduced a new floor. I think it was back in France um, and it was basically a development to the way in which the the throat design worked, you know, where the the fences at the front of the the, the floor are. Uh, And they've back-to-back them over the last couple of races just to to clarify if the new floor was delivering the type of performance that they originally anticipated. And most importantly, if it was delivering the operating window that they desired. You know, there's no point having peak performance if you haven't got a wide enough operating window for for the setup. Yeah, well, and this is one of the things that I was actually genuinely curious to get your take on, is we had the introduction of that technical directive concerning the plank. And it seems like of all the top teams, it's affected Ferrari the most. Is that your opinion and if so why do you think that is i do think it has affected ferrari the most they were the ones that openly admitted that they would have to make changes to fall in line with the the, the changes that were posted by the fia and i think what we have to remember is the development that all of the teams have been undergoing during this middle section of the season to firstly rectify what issues they had in the opening phase but also then to try to find performance there afterwards and as we've already mentioned Ferrari have followed suit in many ways to what Red Bull have been doing in terms of the underfloor design but also the edge floor from the upper side and I think that's distinct that the distinction that perhaps uh, is, isn't quite being made so far this season in terms of uh, the development of the floor because everybody thinks of the floor and they automatically think of the floor edges because that's the development area we been used to over the last few years because the diffusers and the underfloor haven't really been that changeable whereas this season we've seen teams try to adopt solutions from other teams predominantly Red Bull if we're being honest you know the the, the solutions that we've seen from Red Bull are, are now starting to be adapted into the, the the process by other teams because at the end of the day you know they have the best car they might not have started with the best car but they have developed their car to be the best on the grid and i think that's where you know we meant you mentioned the fact that uh, i mentioned previously about adaptability from ferrari and they did say about this at the start of the season but not i was quite keen to say that they wanted to be agile in the way in which they 
approach these regulations. They wanted to be able to take other people's designs and, and, and maybe approach them in a different way to what they have in the past. The problem is, is that then you end up with a mixture of different solutions on your car from what you originally de- designed the DNA of the car around. So you can kind of get a bit lost in the weeds in that respect. And I think that's where perhaps Ferrari fell down because they didn't have the conviction to continue with their own processes and have tried to maybe copy others too much and have ended up in these sort of development cul-de-sacs along the way, especially when you consider that at the start of the season, they actually copied McLaren's floor, which everybody sort of jumped on the bandwagon and said, oh, this must be great because it's very different. Uh, and obviously Ferrari went down that route and then they had to make changes to, to head into a different direction. So uh, as I say, I think, you know, Ferrari may have just found a few cul-de-sacs along the way and have had to step back a few paces along the board, down down the snakes and ladders and and, and start again. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and ask this question now because one of the things that really fascinates me most, most looking at the most recent performance at Monza is it seems like we've had a complete role reversal between where Ferrari was at the beginning of the season, where they had a much wider window in which they could operate, where they were generally kinder on their tires than Red Bull. And now we see them coming with uh, the single lap pace that we expected from Red Bull at the beginning of the season, but we see them struggling with their tires more. I mean, I think you could go almost all the way back to Miami and see the start of this happening. What's going on here? Is is this is this them pursuing the wrong path? Or is this more down to the nature of the technical changes that have been asked of the teams by the FIA? Again, I think it's multifaceted in many ways because what we had at the start of the season was uh, cars that were pretty bloated in you know in terms of weight. Uh, and a lot of the teams have gone on pretty strict diets to try to reduce that weight. I think Red Bull have probably been the most successful in that respect. And I think that is probably where the biggest key to the championship was unlocked because it allowed them then to make the car more drivable, uh, especially for Max. Uh, I think that's where the car has effectively gone away from Perez in many ways is because the setup window has opened for Max uh, in a way in which that he likes to drive the car. And obviously them adding performance has then increased the amount of downforce they have available to them. On top of that, that has the advantage of them being quicker in the slow to medium speed corners. But because they've inherently got this high speed advantage, which I'm sure we'll get to later, um, I think that's where Ferrari have perhaps lost out because the window, as you mentioned, for Red Bull's performance is much wider over all of the the circuits. You know, and and again, I think we, we've obviously mentioned this many times in the past. It comes down to circuit characteristics in many ways, and also how you approach things like cooling. Uh, Red Bull have been very proactive in terms of their brake cooling and also uh, bodywork. And obviously, aerodynamically, they've made a huge amount of changes as well. So there's a lot of development gone on between the top teams, and they've all gone about it very differently. Uh, obviously, Red Bull are the ones that have won out in, in the battle in its entirety. But I do think that it has a, a lot to play into the factor of that they have looked at where they can make the most gains, you know, the low-hanging fruit, and they've attacked those areas better than their rivals. Okay, I, I think that's probably a fair assessment. Uh, Red Bull have done a better job than Ferrari. Ferrari starting out with the concept of higher overall downforce, protecting the tires, having a wider setup window, but being forced to chase the speed of the Red Bull 
they've narrowed their window and they've lost their ability to balance the car well under uh, amongst many different types of circuits. Let's just say it like that. So this brings up the question that I really want to ask, which is, do you think they stick with this concept for next season? And I don't just mean the side pod concept, but I mean the basic approach which they took, which was to take the drag penalty for higher overall downforce and then try and narrow that across the course of the season. Yeah, I mean, again, philosophy-wise, I think we'll see a lot of convergence going into 2023 across the board from all of the teams uh, in terms of aerodynamic development. And I think one of the things that has kind of gone a bit unnoticed this season is the lack of development that we've seen on front and rear wings when you compare historically to where we've been in Formula One over the last decade or so. Uh, and that's primarily because there's no low-hanging fruit there. The development that you can gain from the underfloor, the, the floor edges, the diffuser, and the side pods and engine cover is is basically where the performance is. That's where you're going to make the most gains. So, you know, Ferrari did start with what would be considered the best option when it came to side pods because of the coefficient uh, that they were operating with, and that has been proven by uh, lots of people out there. However, I think Red Bull have made serious improvements in that regard. We only have to look at... Uh, their difference in their side pod arrangement between the, fir- the, the first pre-season test to the second test where they had that extra uh, slide down the side of the side pod itself. Uh, and then they moved to that high shelf arrangement around Silverstone. Silverstone was really the key. Uh, if you look back in, in the development war, Silverstone is where Red Bull put the pitchfork into the ground and said, this is where we're taking the fight to you because they had a massive upgrade for Silverstone. Uh, they followed that up the next race at Austria uh, and making further improvements to the cooling side, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and I think that's where the war really was settled because aerodynamically they, they found the sweet spot um, in terms of downforce availability, but also being able to reduce the amount of drag that they were looking at. Uh, and then obviously uh, the other key parameter that has re-arrived for 2022 is the beam wing that seems to have been evaded by a lot of teams, but where Red Bull seem to have made big strides. Okay, well, I do want to talk about that uh, in a bit. But before we leave Ferrari to um, wonder what might have been, uh, I need to ask you, um, uh, Valtteri Bottas, in a recent interview, talked about comparing the Ferrari power unit to the Mercedes power unit. And he said that it had better drivability and as much power. And I guess by drivability, he was talking about when it doesn't blow up or catch fire. But nonetheless, what does he mean by that? And how does that, how does that help Ferrari? Uh, I guess perhaps he's talking about the way in which that uh, has better traction. Um, but primarily, I would expect it to be the way in which that the energy recovery system works uh, regards the Ferrari power unit in comparison to the Mercedes power unit um, and, and the deliverability of the power across the the, the band uh, perhaps he's just it just works better in that particular package I, I find it difficult to try to make that comparison when he's driving the Alfa Romeo quite frankly because you know it is a totally different package that we're looking at now in comparison to uh, the, the cars that have have gone before that so I mean I know he's got obviously the experience of driving the Mercedes cars but we we are in a very different formula right now compared to where we were from an aerodynamic point of view. I think these cars perhaps drive very differently 
to the way in which the, the previous set of cars do. Uh, and that might feed into uh, Valtteri's feedback in, in some way. Uh, but in my my opinion, that particular quote is down to down to the way in which that it just purely delivers that power across the band. Okay. Well, I was going to talk about Mercedes next, but you've mentioned Red Bull so often, I feel compelled to, to put them first. So here we go. First and foremost, you mentioned Perez. Let's talk about the Perez question, which is namely, he's been running a different floor to Verstappen. Do we expect that to change now that they're not bringing their fancy new chassis to Singapore? The, the, the mystery, mythical chassis. The mythical lightweight chassis, yes. The yeah. mythical lightweight chassis. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm going to ignore the chassis because I think it's a bit of a misnomer. And in my opinion, it, it's something that hasn't ever really been a factor for Red Bull. I think it was perhaps put out there on the basis of the whole discussion that was going on about cost cap, etc., uh, as a bit of a Trojan horse, let's say. Uh, but falling back on um, the rest of the question, which I've forgotten what it was. Well, it's just basically, if you look Perez. at the performance of Perez, you mentioned that mm-hmm. that the that by widening the performance window of the car, it's taken it out of an area that he likes his setup to be in. But the car is faster, I presume, overall with this with this balance. Um, but the biggest singular difference that I'm aware of right now between the two cars is that Perez is still stuck with the newer floor, which actually works worse. So I guess my question would be, are they just going to give him a copy of Max's floor? Or do we expect them to try and fix the floor that he has and he or Max will get stuck with that in some free practice to see if it actually works the way they want it to? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because Technically, he has the better, technically better floor, um, but it's only better in as much as that it works better for Perez. It doesn't work as well for Max, and, and the team have come out and said that. You know, they they agree that they're giving up lap time overall from a performance factor to make Perez more comfortable with the car. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on a second. So let me understand this clearly before we move forward. And not because I have any bets with any other panel members or anything like that. But let me just understand that Perez is taking this newer floor because he likes it better. It makes him feel more comfortable in the car. Yes, he's giving up overall lap time. According to the team, they believe that 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 floor doesn't deliver in the same way that the old floor did. Um, uh, But they made a a quantity of them. And because it makes him feel more comfortable, they are allowing him to continue to use that floor uh, to 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 just basically make him available with that car. You know, he, he works better with that floor on the car. Okay. Then is there any other explanation for why he's been so off of Verstappen's times over the last few races? I think it's a combination of factors. I think he's not as comfortable with the car as it's developed. So obviously it's become uh, more suited to Verstappen's uh, design, uh, sort of racecraft in, in as much as that Verstappen doesn't like um, a certain way of the car operating, whereas you know that, that 
doesn't suit Perez in the opposite sense. And so you end up in this situation where you, you know, the, the, the numbers don't lie. The numbers say that the car is quick because X, Y, or Z. But unfortunately, you have two drivers that drive the car in a very different way. And on top of that, you have two drivers that are trying to fight the way in which that the tyres are performing as well. And obviously, we all know in the past that Sergio was a bit of a tyre whisperer. You know, he could make the tyres last much longer. But we haven't really seen that kind of scenario unfold with the, this new specification of 18-inch tyre. Um, and so I think that that has sort of had an impact on the way in which that he has to approach races as well, because from a strategy point of view, he can no longer lean on the fact that he's just much better on the tyres. So it doesn't open that opportunity for him. And uh, that makes a bit of a difference when you, you put him up against Max. Uh, I do think that obviously there is a bit of a, a gap between the two in terms of uh, performance anyway. Um, but, you know, Perez has been able to bridge that gap in the past because of his outside skill set, perhaps, of the way in which that Max approaches things. Okay, so uh, you have completely derailed my show because I have this theory about Red Bull that, that I, I want to give you the opportunity to mock me for, for being completely wrong. I don't often do this, but, but I do, I, I do I've, I've had discussions with other people, and I'm just curious um, as to what you think on it. But then you talk about the tires, and then I just get distracted by bright, shiny object. Squirrel. Um, but talking about the tires real quick, it seems like to me, looking at the races, what we're seeing is more stops is you is suddenly becoming a better strategy with these tires and that overall uh, starting on a softer tire is therefore giving you double undercuts on your opponents and only the appearance of a virtual safety car or safety car can really upset that apple cart for people who are who are trying to run longer is that the general sense you've got from watching the races so far so you mean the mercedes at, at zanvoort because yeah. effectively that's what happened at Zanvoort. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that is the general sense of things, isn't it? Is that basically uh, it is better to run short, sharp stints, take all of the life out of the tyres, sacrifice the amount of time you're going to lose in the pit lane, hope you get the VSC at the right time or the safety car at the right time uh, as a bit of a gamble around that sort of tyre stop period. And don't really try to save tyres too much. You know, over the past, well, maybe even decade, we've been through Formula One trying to go through a tyre saving strategy where, you know, you, you're waiting for the, the pit stop window to open. And it, it, and if I talk about pit stop window opening, what I don't mean is that, oh, these tyres are supposed to go so many laps. It's that you haven't got the op- one of your rivals in your window behind you. So that prevents you from stopping. But if you go that little bit longer, you wait for them to pit, you suddenly clear your pit stop window. So that's where we were in the past and now that's kind of not quite gelling quite as well as it used to which is which is kind of advantageous to be perfectly honest because we've been asking for Pirelli to provide these type of tires for a long time and it's suddenly come to fruition with the the, the new construction and the 18 inch wheels but also we have to remember our favorite topic that the tire pressures 
minimum tire pressures have been affected by this in in many ways because they have been ramped up this season way beyond the expectation and i think that's primarily because uh, once again pirelli have been backed into a corner where they expected downforce levels and we're way beyond them again uh, and so they're having to react to that situation and and the teams are then having to react again on top of that yeah well it's interesting and and we might talk about tires a little bit more later because um because we have some tire blankets and things like that temperatures changing and maybe going away altogether but let's get back to the red bull now one of the things that struck me um and it's not because i was watching uh videos with kyle at three o'clock in the morning when i came over on my karting adventure but one of the things that struck me was that maybe red bull have a bit of an advantage with this particular set of regulations as they are right now because they run a car with more rakes so i actually i'm going to ask this question first relative to the rake that they had in the previous set of regulations is it around that same amount or is it just got more rake compared to like the pancake that mercedes is running now it's nowhere near what it was before it's nowhere near pre pre uh, 22 regulations but it is obviously much more rake in the rb18 than you would say in the the w13 right and so i'm going to back into this by saying would i be wrong in thinking that because they have the rear higher than the front potentially they have the option to run the rear softer than other teams like mercedes or even ferrari would and get away with it because they just simply have more travel room back there yeah, I mean, there, there is obviously the the potential for that. You do run into other issues aerodynamically and setup wise from from running a softer rear suspension, but it can also be advantageous um, in that respect as well. So, yes, it, essentially, it, it, it can be a gain, but you have to kind of bake it into your overall philosophy you can't just set start out with one particular route like mercedes and, and then revert to a to a high rake yeah because because what it, it occurs to me is that you remember last season when everybody was flexing their rear wings yeah yeah so it just seems like to me that if you're flexing a rear wing you're removing downforce at higher speeds but that the car itself is compressing so you're not losing downforce but your downforce is going to be more stable. And then as you slow and the rear rises and that wing unflexes, you're actually maintaining a more stable level of downforce. And because the rear is rising, you're putting more downforce on the front, which should aid entry to the corner. And I'm just wondering if, am I completely off base here? Like, like, are they, are they literally able to almost tune this depending upon the top speed of the circuit they're at to aid them? So you're you're suggesting that we're in the ballpark of what we were doing in the past, in much as that we're stalling the floor, is what you're suggesting here. And I'm not going to I'm not going to say it's not happening. I'm not going to say it is happening. Um, I'm saying it's possible because we've seen it before. However, I would say that the tools at which that the teams have at their disposal to be able to perform those acts are much less than they were in the past because we've obviously got a much less complex suspension system in able to enable those scenarios to play out. Uh, however, I will add that I do believe that Red Bull have done a much better job than anybody else in the field in terms of being able to maintain 
uh, the right height of the floor uh, because of the way in which that they've got stability uh, between the chassis and the floor, uh, not only because of the uh, damper system that they've got on the bib, but also because of the internal stays and beam elements that they've got within the side pods that allow the floor to stay more rigid rather than flexing around like some of their competitors do. So it's almost like some of the stiffness we see in the Mercedes, they've been able to internalize through the side pod onto the floor, which maybe gives them a little more setup room. When it, when yeah, it I mean, at the end pod. of the day, if the floor's moving around a lot, you're, you're losing out aerodynamically uh, because the, the ride height sensitivity of the floor change is too much. Uh, obviously, Red Bull are doing a lot of geometry differences in terms of the underfloor shapes to try to mitigate some of those problems as well, which, again, like I mentioned earlier, Ferrari have tried to copy and we're seeing teams like Alpine and McLaren move into that direction. The biggest problem that we have with those with actually understanding what's going on is that we have to wait for a car to go off circuit uh, and be recovered or un- inadvertently a, a mechanic to to show you the underside of the floor when they didn't mean to uh, because those areas of the car we don't see all the time you know and that i think is as i mentioned earlier one of the big misconceptions of, of these rules for for 2022 when we talk about floors most people assume the the floor to be the, the the you know the area that we see on top but in reality a lot of the time we're talking about the underfloor details the bits that we don't see from from one race to the next and unless somebody had a an incident on track um i think what i should mention at this point because you've mentioned about the difference between downforce and drag between circuits with red bull is something that i mentioned earlier uh, and that is the beam wing scenario because they've been very clever in their arrangement this year. Uh, They've got a biplane stacked arrangement, and the only other team to have appropriated that is Alpine, which they didn't do until about six or seven races into the season. I think it was Baku. Um, But the way that Red Bull approach their beam wing this year is very interesting because it harks back to 2013, uh, in as much as that 2013 was the last time we had the beam wings. And they were using the beam wing very differently to everybody else back then as well, because they were thinking about the way in which that the diffuser and rear wing talk to one another in an aerodynamic sense. You know, the the way in which that those flow structures are connected to one another. If you add the beam wing into that, you've suddenly added another way of those two items talking to one another from an aerodynamic sense. And what Red Bull have have done is that they haven't approached the the drag and downforce problem. In, as, in the same way as some of the other teams in, in as much as that they don't think about the rear wing design as much. You know, in the past, we've seen teams bring very complex, different rear wings to different circuit configurations. And we're not really seeing that with Red Bull. They've got a couple of specifications and then they tune everything with the beam wing. So they, they have a biplane stacked beam wing for a high downforce configuration. They have... a they take away that upper element to reduce drag and the way that it talks to the rear wing for the lower downforce configurations. And then they have a very high downforce configuration, which is very similar to the downforce configurations we see elsewhere on other cars. So they've kind of tuned these things to enable them to have a different way of approaching different circuits without having to redesign their rear wing for different downforce configurations. And I think Monza, really highlighted that because they didn't bring a new rear wing for Monza, which everybody else did. Well, that 
That is amazing. And you said that it's Alpine that, that seemed to be chasing that solution a bit. And I'm, I'm wondering, what is it? Where do you see them going with this uh, relative to their rivals? And I mean, how important is this, do you think, to their overall, to the gains that they have made? I think it's just a, you know, it's one of the, the smaller items that you can tick off in a large list of things that Red Bull have done right. You know, it's it, it, nothing is a silver bullet on that car. Everything has to work in unison with one another, just as we've had with the, the Mercedes in the, the last few uh, seasons. Uh, the You know, you can't just isolate one particular solution on a car and say, oh, yeah, this is how everything must work. Um, everybody must copy this because, you know, it's the go-to thing to do. Um, but it is one an, an interesting feature. That's why I mention it. You know, it's an interesting and novel way of approaching things that other teams haven't perhaps looked at in the same way. Uh, and it does feed into the rest of their development loop because in the way in which that the beam wing works, everything forward of it also has to be tuned to that. So the way in which they've changed their side pod and engine cover over the course of the season is attributed to the design of the beam wing as much as the fairings over the rear suspension, etc. So, you know, they all tie into one another, but it is just an interesting and novel approach to the way in which that they've, they've gone about tuning the car to, to, to suit the different circuit characteristics that each circuit offers. Okay, well, it's fascinating to hear that this goes all the way back to 2013. Um, and our listener, Alex McBride, also wanted to know if you think that in general, running those higher rate cars during all those years gave perhaps, uh, he says, Ferrari and Red Bull a leg up in understanding the ground effect over Mercedes. But I'd say from what you're telling me, it's probably more Red Bull that we'd be talking about here. Well, you could you could argue both because Red, uh, Ferrari did also run a much higher rate car through the, the sort of last decade or so, uh, if you're comparing them to Mercedes. Um, I, I think it's a very different formula that we've got on here in terms of the approach from a design perspective uh, the diffuser is a much larger area now because of the underfloor tunnels that reach into it. And also, obviously, the complexity of the barge boards are lost, but you have gained the way in which the, you use the, the fences uh, and, and so on and so forth. But, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you understand the, the point at which you started from, which Red Bull had a very good handle of the old regulations, uh, it is only going to help you to 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 design these cars. But I wouldn't say it's... I wouldn't say that that is the determining factor between them having a, a winning car compared to the Mercedes, for argument's sake. I think what we must also remember is that um, there's a lot of differences between the real real world uh, build of the cars and the simulated version of the cars that has tripped up many of the teams this year. Uh, poor poising, bouncing being the, the you know the big factor that many people saw of that, but it. it obviously a global problem around the car you know it's it's not just the porpoising that's been an issue the teams have suffered because they didn't have the tools uh tuned effectively to to correlate to the real world okay and uh, i i think i recall early on like uh, maybe in their first or second development that red bull bring brought to the track being told that they were surprised by how well the correlation was between their 
model and what they saw on track. So in that sense, maybe they had a bit of a winning lottery ticket with um, just with the way their modeling worked and how these cars work in real life. Yeah, and I think perhaps they went through some real big issues in 2020 in this respect. Uh, looking back on it, you know, when they were struggling with the car, the RB16, with uh, the difference between how Max felt with the car and Alex felt with the car, and they did a lot of back-to-back testing, and they understood at that time that they had major correlation issues between the real world and their simulation tools, and they spent perhaps half to three-quarters of a season there just applying the, 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 the required changes to be able to get back to where they were. And sometimes that means taking three steps forward, five steps back, two steps forward, and so on and so forth until you actually iron those kinks out. And they did that in a very pragmatic way that season and still managed to stay you know, relatively close to Mercedes and the rest of the teams uh, that they were battling around at that particular time. Uh, and that obviously then extrapolated into a, a better car in the RB16B, uh, but obviously perhaps pay dividends as they moved on to this particular project that we're talking about now. Okay, so I want to go on. I've given you one chance to thoroughly embarrass me with my wacky theories. Um, but in looking at what transpired since Spa, I'm beginning to wonder, has Red Bull primarily been playing a game of be kind to my tires? And not a game of go fast or go faster all this time. And, and and does that mean, as you mentioned earlier, were they really all along looking at losing the weight as being the primary source of better lap time and spent all of their efforts looking at how to manage the tires better in a wider variety of circumstances? Uh, I think it's a, a, a combination of factors, as you mentioned, obviously. Um, the, they've spent a huge amount of time in the opening phase of the season not only developing the car from an aerodynamic perspective uh, but also fundamentally understanding how to better extract performance from the car not only over a single lap but also over the course of the race and I think so in some ways they've actually sacrificed uh, one lap performance in the opening phase of the season uh, for race pace to, to better understand how how these tires actually work uh, because they are very different uh, as we've already mentioned uh, strategically uh, to how the, the last batch of tires were uh, and obviously that feeds back into to lap time and performance over a race and at the end of the day the points come on Sunday not on Saturday so you can have as many pole positions as you like but if you don't convert them on a Sunday then you, you're not going to win a championship okay so before we move away from Red Bull and uh... I, I casually note that we have been discussing how qualifying isn't quite as important as it used to be, as as the overtake as the just design nature of the cars makes it more possible if you have a quicker car on Sunday to get round your rival. Um, uh, our friend Holler wants to know if we talked about the flappy Monza DRS wing that we saw on Red Bull, and he's kind of surprised that we've seen this in two different sets of regulations now. And I think we may have talked about it, but I'm not sure we talked about it on air. So why are we seeing this same problem reoccur, Mr. Summers? Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, Red Bull didn't have a Monza-specific 
bespoke rear wing design available for them in Monza. They decided that they were going to run their rear wing configuration that we've seen the rest of the season and they were going to use the low trim beam wing in combination with it. However, they did trial on Sergio Perez during FP1 a trimmed rear flap. Now, we've seen all the other teams try this throughout the course of the season. It's a way of reducing downforce, reducing drag, and it's very cost-effective because effectively all you're doing is taking a Dremel Dremel to the, the rear wing element. The problem with that is that it changes the way in which that the rear wing flap operates in conjunction with the DRS pivot. Now, we know the problems that they had during 2021, and I still put money on the fact that if they had continued to have those problems, um, then things might have happened quite differently uh, come the end of the championship. However, I think what we were seeing here is the way in which that their DRS mechanism works is more the problem, and it's the pivots on the end of the wing. There, these rear wings are very different in design to, to what we had in the past because of the way the end plates interact. You know, we haven't, we've got these arc templates now. Uh, so the, the design is very, very different. But I think primarily what we've got happening here is we've got a, a rear wing that's not really designed to be trimmed, but you're trimming it to try to, to, to make some drag uh, savings. Um, and then when you open the DRS flap, uh, you know, it's not really designed to work with that trim. Uh, and I think, you know, they got caught out with that Last year, they've got caught out with it this year. I don't think we'll see a reoccurrence of it this year because they no longer need to try to push to those levels. Um, They've got the configurations they need. And that's why they decided to do what they did at Monza because they knew that they had the performance in their pocket, um, but they just you know, wanted to push during free practice just to see if it did make any difference. And obviously it did, but it meant the the oscillation of the rear wing and and that really wasn't uh, something that they wanted to see. Okay, let's talk about Mercedes real quick. Uh, Now, it seems like to me they have made the absolute most out of reliability. But do you think that they have actually caught up now in terms of performance to Ferrari? I think that really is circuit dependent. And if we're talking about them from you know, a performance point of view from a chassis and power unit side of things. I think from a power unit side of things, obviously that they do have the the most durable uh, on the grid Uh, compared to their rivals. They're they're not having as many penalties. So that that just plays out, doesn't it? Um, But with the penalty system, the way it is and the way in which that you can overtake come Sunday, it's not really a penalty anymore if your car is that much quicker than the rest of the field, which as we found out in the past and we are finding out this season for likes of Red Bull and Ferrari, you can just drive through the field and and taking the penalties isn't really problematic. Um, In terms of Mercedes, I do think that they've made huge strides. I mean, you only have to think about where that car was up until uh, post-Miami. I I think Barcelona was where they were really starting to get on top of the car. Um, they really started to understand it in the races that that followed that. But up until that point, I think they were really lost. Uh, they didn't have uh, the parts available to them that they could use that allowed the car to perform in a, in a more controllable manner. Um, but they have sacrificed setup in, in many respects as well because they've had to narrow their operating window to make the car work. So I do think there'll be plenty of changes for the W14 um, whether they'll have to sacrifice their side pod design 
Um, that's a question that only Mercedes will be able to answer and we'll see uh, quite soon in pre-season and testing, I'd imagine. But I would imagine we'll see uh, plenty of convergence next year uh, up and down the grid in chasing the, the lead teams. Ah, you've carefully anticipated exactly where I was going with that line of questioning. Because I was basically going to say, do you really, I mean, does it seem to you that the car, this particular design of the car is just too flawed to really be at the sharp end? They're going to have to luck into a victory. I, 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 I do believe that there is still potential there because otherwise I think they would have backtracked earlier. If they didn't feel that there was potential, they, they could have made a, a huge shift earlier in the season. And I still think that they think that there is potential behind the design that they're chasing. And after all, we do have to remember that Mercedes over the course of the last few years have actually stood out in many ways in which that they've approached their design philosophy in very different ways to other teams. You know, low rake, long wheelbase, front wing designs that are very obtuse when you look at them compared to other other areas of the the the, the grid. Um, so, you know, just because something is very different doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's right either. Um, but I do think that we will see more convergence. I'm not sure Mercedes will give up the, the ghost too quickly. Uh, but obviously, if they're leaving loads of performance on the table, then they're going to have to make the switch, um, even if it does hurt them to do so. Okay, let's talk about the midfield real quick. Because there's still some midfield battles. In fact, one of the closest battles right now is between Alonso and Alcon for P8. And this actually brings up in a question, not about the two of them or who's going to win, but about why is Norris in an unimpeachable position ahead of them? And just more immediately, what happened to them at Monza? They seem to have a car that imitated the Red Bull in a lot of ways. And yet at Monza, they really were unable to. And it's not just Ocon wasn't able to come from the back. Alonso really wasn't making great progress before his DNF either. Do you have any, is there any technical insight as to what went wrong for them at that race? No, not that I'm particularly aware of, to be honest, Matt. But as you say, Alpine have kind of chased the the two design philosophies ahead of them. Um, they've got a mixture of the the Red Bull and Ferrari side pod solution in in many ways. Um, As I've already mentioned, they've gone down the Red Bull beam wing scenario um, and and other areas of the car, you know, that that are are applicable across the the field. However, one interesting thing is the way in which a lot of teams to reduce drag have followed Alpine with their rear wing design. Uh, As you probably seen throughout the course of the opening phase of the season most people move to what you would call a spoon-shaped rear wing um, for this particular regulation set because of the way in which that um, the interaction between the winged elements and the end plates work so you've got that curled over section now most people thought that the um, the the arc had to be quite a wide region to be able to obviously facilitate the downforce that was required um, but we've seen Alpine sort of stretch to what you would consider to be more of a conventional main plane, more of a straight element, and running quite a, a you know a tight angle radius on on that end plate section. Uh, and a lot of the teams have followed towards that uh, because obviously they've seen that Alpine have made strides in that respect uh, and obviously uh, gained some performance. So I think. Alpine have made a step forward, but relative to the gap in which the Ferrari and 
Red Bull have pulled, it doesn't seem that large. You know, they've made gains, but it's just not as large as the gains ahead of them. Uh, and in relativity to McLaren, McLaren's kind of, again, stepped towards the Red Bull philosophy in the way in which they designed the, the back end of their season's side pods. So they've already talked about the fact that they're going to have to make major changes for 2023 because they know they're well behind the curve uh, and, and they need to make changes to the car in order to improve those factors. But so does everybody else. You know, th- this is so early in a regulation set that there's going to be huge amounts of performance still on the table. Um, it's just how and where you fall in that pecking order and how you make up those gains relative to your to your closest rivals. Okay, because one of the, one of the things that I was really curious about, but you sort of already answered it, was is that it seems like McLaren has constantly talked down their car. Our car isn't that great. We're not going to develop it anymore. We're, you know, we know we have issues. And yet, when I look at the performance, at least in the hands of Norris, well, you know, sometimes it's still faster than the Alpine. So, are they are they trying to fool us a little bit with regards to where their car is, or or is it just circuit specific and at certain circuits their design will be better than the alpine yeah again like we've talked about before circuit specifics do do fall into it just because of the way in which that the car operates under those certain ranges and conditions and setup um i I, as i've mentioned in the past i think that the that mclaren decide to create more of a benign car uh, something that's not too too far on either end of the spectrum and Perhaps that is where they need to be more radical in their approach. They've been burnt on many occasions in the past by trying radical approaches, um, but sometimes you have to to, to push the push the needle a little bit. And, and perhaps this approach of being more benign, although it does obviously over the course of the season work out for them quite well, it doesn't push them towards the front end of the pack, and that's realistically where they are trying to get to. And so you know that that's. That's where they may have to go. Okay. And not to think that I am now grasping at straws to make the end of the season exciting, but I couldn't help but noticing in looking over the standings that not only is there a four-way fight for 11th between Gasly, Magnussen, Vettel, and Ricardo, but that in the constructors, we have Haas and Aston Martin for seventh overall, a single point apart. So I just want to briefly ask about the Haas upgrade, which they said gave them the downforce they wanted, but has seen them sent to the other end of the grid, supposedly. Is is this just them not understanding it yet, not being able to set it up correctly? Or do you think they've literally just chosen the incorrect way to go with how they're doing things? Um, I, I think that basically it's t- it took them a while to understand the car at the, the start of the season as well, didn't it, in many ways. And I think that could fundamentally play into it. I think, uh, as we've already mentioned, the way in which the tyres operate compared to where your car currently sits also falls in under this bracket as well. So perhaps sometimes they're kind of finding something in free practice that doesn't really pay out further down the line. Um I think it does fall down on setup in many ways, uh, but I do feel like they fell down the pack, even with this upgrade, because as I mentioned, because the other teams have 
put so much focus on bringing and developing and upgrading and updating their car race to race to race and has have bought virtually nothing, albeit a big package in one go, it wasn't big enough to bridge the gap to those that have been doing it in smaller increments. And so they've lost out basically trying to sort of bring all of their eggs in one basket rather than doing a, a week by week shop. And that is where they've kind of hurt themselves in many ways, I would suspect. But from a budgetary point of view, obviously they have to have to think about how they need to operate to be able to fall under those constraints as well. So it's a difficult one for Haas because they fall into a different category compared to many of the other teams in the field. And I think we're start, finally starting to see the likes of Alfa Romeo and Williams realise as well that they can follow suit with the other teams in their mini development battles whilst also then bringing larger upgrades. And I think that's where Haas might fall down in the future if they can't maintain the cost versus um, performance gap uh, that the other teams are going to fall into. Okay. Um, let's, let me ask you then about Aston. I was very intrigued by the, um, by the rear wing that we saw show up. And is this the start of Dan Fallows really making his presence known? And if that's the case, are we maybe looking at Alonso finally having made a good career choice and moving to a team that has a lot of upside potential and a good technical team to uh, make it happen? Well, I think we've said in the past that Aston are moving in the right direction. It's just how long it takes for them to get there. Um, Dan Fallows obviously comparing them to the likes of Red Bull when they first entered the sport, um, having taken over from Jaguar. So, you know, that, that kind of trajectory. However, if you're thinking in that remit, it took them five years to get there or five chassis iterations uh, and a major regulation change. So I'm not sure that uh, Aston Martin will be wanting to wait that long to get to that particular uh, area of, uh, of the grid. I do think they're going to make massive progress from a technical standpoint. Uh, Dan Fallows, obviously uh, a major contributor to uh, Red Bull's success over the last few years. Uh, he's going to have a major impact over Aston Martin. It's just uh, him finding his feet there and being able to to work in a way in which that is conducive with the environment that he finds himself in because obviously it's going to be a different environment uh, and they are going to have a different set of skills to what he's, he's used to at Red Bull. So it will take time. Uh, as you mentioned, that rear wing design uh, that they introduced at Hungary was a very interesting solution. Uh, it's yet to be deemed to be accurately described as actually good uh, because we still don't know if it is or not. Um, let's see if it arrives on anybody's car in Singapore, and then that will give us the, the litmus test as to whether it's actually a good design, because everybody then will be jumping on it. Um, I mean, fundamentally, it looks like a good design, in, in as much as that it breaches the, the, the intent of the regulations without actually erring on the side of being illegal. Um, but does it actually add any performance? You know, it, it's all well and good something looking like it should add performance but if it just doesn't add up to something then that there's little point in it we've as i mentioned with with mclaren um you know think of the suspension blockers of 2014 which is supposed to imitate the beam wing such a interesting and novel way of approaching things but it didn't add up to any additional performance in fact it probably lost them some performance so it'll be be interesting to see if it actually stays on the car but nonetheless it is a good 
uh, way of seeing Dan's influence over the team and the, perhaps that he's given some autonomy to people that perhaps hadn't had that in the past. We have to remember that that team under previous guises, Force India, I'm really talking about, is have excelled at producing very novel designs for low cost that have shot them to an area of the grid that they shouldn't be in. Since they've become Aston Martin, they've kind of slid in the opposite direction. So they need to get back on board with how they operated in the past. And I think that Dan will facilitate that in many ways because he'll look at perhaps where uh, they can make gains from a technical point of view from you know employees uh, and where they need to go from there. All right. Well, it seems like we've wrung the neck of the present. What say we go talk about the future a little bit before we say goodbye? Now, you've mentioned convergence, but I want predictions. Is it all copies of Red Bull next seat, next preseason? Is that what we're going to see? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, what will be interesting is Red Bull have a very interesting design to the opening to their side pod inlet, which is facilitated by the side impact protection spars positions. Now, if we scroll back to 2017, it was Ferrari who came up with the solution that everybody then copied based on having that low-slung side impact spar and being able to change the way in which that they could operate the bodywork around the side pods. What I do predict is that a lot of teams will perhaps copy that solution that we've seen from Red Bull, having that open top to their side pods. The interesting thing will be, though, do Red Bull retain it? Will we see a lot of copies and then Red Bull make a switch? Because we've seen that again uh, happen in uh, the, the past from a technical perspective. And that's what I always find fascinating about car launches and go, moving into you know the, the second, third, fourth year of, of a regulation set is how do different design approaches move from one year to the next? And do you give up those things even though they look pretty good because you found something that is marginally better? Uh, so that I do think there will be convergence. Uh, I'm not sure that we'll see a huge amount of Ferrari-style side pods uh, just because of the complexity of that design uh, and, and being able to get the best from it. Uh, but you never know. You know there, there might be other teams that, that decide that that is the route to go, um, although I would have thought that you know the likes of Aston would have, would have looked at that, uh, but they decided on the, the Red Bull route. So it will be very interesting to see where the low-hanging fruit remains going forward. Well, this brings up an interesting question to me, because it's all well and good to say, well, my side pod is better than your side pod, and I can prove it with computer math. But it seems like when we watch the actual cars racing on track, you've got a bit of an advantage if you have a Red Bull style concept, high top speed, even though it reduces the effect of, you know, even though you're slipperier, so maybe your DRS isn't worth quite as much. Having that overall high top speed seems to be pretty fundamentally important into making your way through the field. Is there any chance you could that we might see either Ferrari or Mercedes move that direction with with what they are doing? Yeah, I mean, it, it, of course, they, they will try to position their car in a way in which that uh, aligns with what has 
taken the championship this season and has taken the championship quite comfortably in many respects. Uh, I mean, I know we have plenty of races to go, but it's pretty much tied up now, isn't it? And and um, I, I foresee uh, Ferrari licking their wounds a little bit, considering that come the start of the season, we were thinking that the you know the the red team might actually have pulled one off for a change uh, and be making a storm towards the front. Um, sadly, that hasn't been the case. And unfortunately, on top of that, you know, they, they have fell by the wayside uh, in many other ways as well, uh, not only from a technical standpoint. So um, I, I do think that Ferrari might certainly look at switching. Uh, and the reason that they might look at switching is because that they have been agile in their approach to designed this season anyway as i've already mentioned that they've copied mclaren's floor at the start of the year when that when that didn't look great they then switched to the red bull approach um and they've back and forth on certain design aspects of the underfloor from the red bull stable um because there are different design aspects within their floor that uh, is interesting um from a downforce and drag perspective anyway um but yeah, it's going to be interesting just to see how many teams switch towards a Red Bull philosophy. There's already so many in the grid that are almost there anyway. I mean, Aston is, is a basic copy. Uh, and obviously, you, you've got teams like Alpha Tauri and um, Alpha Romeo, Williams, already on that route. Um, I, I think the biggest factor, though, is not the side pods. Again, bit of a misnomer because it's the thing that we can see. Uh, the performance comes from the underfloor. And where teams can find and continue to find performance from the underfloor is what is going to be key in terms of the, the, the amount of performance that can be gained um, over the course of a shorter period. And just to clarify, when you're talking about underfloor, you're not just talking about that visible part of the diffuser we see at the back. You're talking about the, all those tunnels and things that sit almost right underneath where the driver is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously you've got the plank in the centre and then outwards from there you have the floor, um, which is much more sculpted now. We have basic Venturi tunnels. Uh, some are flat, like you would expect to see on, on the old designs that we had in the past, and, and some are more shapely, i.e. Red Bull, uh, and have much more tricks in terms of their geometry, uh, not only at the hull, but also at the boat tail at the rear. Uh and then obviously we've got things like the ice skates, you know, that the, their version of the edge wing uh, that have come along and changed the way that people are approaching the design of that area of the floor. You know, Alpine have moved to that, Red Bull have moved to it. And and, and so I, I do foresee that being another area where teams will, will rethink their designs. But we do have some small regulation changes uh, based upon, obviously, um, the, the floor situation at the start of this season. Uh, so we've got the, the floors being raised slightly at the edges anyway. So everybody's going to have to rethink that area of the class slightly. Uh, but there, there will be a dominating factor that people will start to, to move towards. Okay. Um, which helpfully brings up the question of they're changing the floor regulations anyway, aren't they? And by raising the floor edges. So real quick, what does that mean? And is this a bit of a gift maybe to Mercedes, who seems to have struggled most with things where they are now? Um, I, I wouldn't say it's a gift to Mercedes at all. Um, I, I think it will hurt everybody evenly in many ways. I think the way I would explain the, the change 
is to think about the difference between the 2020 regs and the 2021 regs when we cut that triangle at the rear corner of the corner, uh, the rear corner of the floor. Uh, in many ways, the the FIA are looking at ways to dilute the performance of that region of the floor so we can't have as much downforce potential um, and it makes it less susceptible to ride height changes. And whether that's successful or not, because I think the teams just operate on a wholly different level to what the FIA can outthink them. And so they should because of the the amount of personnel that they have at their disposal versus the FIA. Um, But I don't think it will be I don't think it will favour one team over another in in many ways. Just as you know, everybody conspired to think that the changes for Spa would suddenly bring Mercedes right into the game and they'd be a second quicker than they were before. That was never going to be the case. These things are always much smaller um, in reality than than you ever expect because the teams are already working on them. They're already marginalising the, the losses and the gains to, to try to, to mitigate the, the, the performance that they're going to lose. Okay, so before we leave floors, uh, our, our listener, Rolando Castellanos, would like to know, how does the floor change the way the car handles? And he goes on to say it was all about porpoising, but once it was resolved, how do all the squigglies, and that's his technical term, on the underside change the performance of the car in terms of its handling? And I'm sure you could probably answer that in about 10 seconds, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe need a few more seconds than 10. But um, it just becomes down to um, basically the, the, the way in which the, the, the car handles in many respects because you, you've, got less, you've got sensitivity to the ride height. And the, what each of the teams are trying to do is mitigate the problems that are caused by that sensitivity. So obviously porpoising was a problem because of the ride height issue uh, and a few of the things that was going on, resonance, et cetera, um, where the teams have, have obviously mitigated those issues. Uh, and obviously we've had this new technical directive as well. Um, it, it's all about basically making the, the car more controllable over a, a, a wider operating window. Uh, and so we see things like the, the sculpt sculpted sides inside the underfloor from uh, the likes of Red Bull and Ferrari at the front end of the the plank area. Uh, They've also got these sort of um, serrated edges at the rear end. And the reason they're doing that is to try to change the volume of the the underfloor um, and the diffuser uh, so that you've got uh, less of a problem when your ride height changes. So if you've got lots of square edges, for argument's sake, you're going to have a lot of problems in being able to handle the the way in which that the the volume changes as the ride height increases or decreases under under load whereas they are trying to mitigate those with design concepts that reduce that that problem uh, and so as these regulations mature and the teams get better at understanding how to react to those problems then you're going to see less and less of the the issue okay um there has been some talk about lower temperatures in the tires next season. Do you expect that to have any major impact? Not particularly, no. Are we talking about the, the tire blanket temperatures? Yeah, tire blanket temperatures, yeah. Okay, yeah. So basically we're, we're seeing um, Pirelli try to move towards uh, a no-blanket scenario. For 2024, the rules are currently set out that we will have no tire blankets, which I think is going to be interesting to say the least uh, imagine coming out 
of the pit lane on a stone cold set of hard tires. Um, that is going to be an interesting challenge for the drivers uh, because currently they're able to control them much better in the blankets before they obviously that they're, they're bought out to the pit lane. Uh, that tire diff tire temperature difference is already quite large uh, between the previous set of tires to this one. I think it's about 30 degree difference, but I think we were on a, about a hundred degrees before and now we're on about 70 yeah. depending if you're front and rear. Uh, and I think the talk is of 50 degrees front and rear for next year uh, as a, as a gradual sliding for, for the new tires for, for uh, 2024. Um, but Pirelli are already talking about the fact that they're going to have to design an entirely new uh, new tyre and construction and compound, et cetera, for 2024 anyway. So we'll have something entirely different to what we have now anyway. Uh, so it's a bit of a moot topic in many ways. Okay. Um, and, and last, we have um, Adam asking, with the extra races, will the teams get extra power units and parts? No, not as it currently stands. The regulations say no. The regulations yeah. say that there is a maximum of 24 races, which we have a maximum of 24 races. Uh, and the regulations stipulate how many power unit elements that are available for those 24 races. However, I will throw a spanner in that works in as much as that the World Mad Sport Council have met uh, on Tuesday and they have agreed that we're having six sprint races as of 2023. Uh, so we're going up by three sprint races which obviously means that you're going to be putting more mileage on the power unit components. So I do think there'll be some change. The sporting regulations don't currently cover it, but I think that there might be some ad- adaptation to allow for that those extra sprint races and some of the scenarios that we've seen unfold already this year in terms of grid penalties, etc. Okay, well, that sounds like a definitive maybe. But, well, like I say, as it stands, it's a no, but we all know that things can change. And they can change in the blink of an eye. Well, where, Summers, can we find you on the social medias? As always, the best place is on Twitter, and it's Summers F1. Lovely. And I have to say thanks for spending so much time. I feel like I have as many questions now as I did when I started, but they would probably just have more parts of them and be slightly more annoying. So. Um, I'm going to say for me, I'm at Matt PT 55 on the Twitters. Please come tell me how wrong I am about all the things. I always love a good discussion. And until next time, this has been Missed Apex Podcast. Aces, thank you very much, Steve. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the big stop button. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.